You know, you don't have to look very hard to the world, to those outside, to see that mankind is very, very messed up. That there's something very wrong with the human condition. I mean, if you simply click on the news, if you scan through social media, it seems like you see story after story after story of the weakness and, and the fallenness of mankind. It's overwhelming. Mankind is, is full of chaos and sin and evil. I mean, think about the stories you hear of wars that are happening throughout the world. Think about terrorism and sex trafficking, the murder of live babies, bombs that ruin the lives of innocent bystanders. Think about the stories we've heard of mass shootings, attacks on marriage, stories of bullying, addictions, rampant immorality, the horrors of genocide. And it seems like the more and more we increase our global awareness, the more and more aware we are of what's happening in the world, the more we see atrocities and injustice, the more we see corruption and evil in the world. It's not hard to see it, is it? Simple scan through the, today's news and you will see that there is something very wrong with mankind. But one of the problems that we fail to see in the way that we view sin and evil in the world is that we simply view it as out there, as something that is ethereal, something that is external to us. We can clearly see sin and evil in the lives of men like Kermit Gosnell or the two brothers that, that planted the bombs at the Boston Marathon and led to this, this crazy shootout throughout the city. But so often we fail to see it when it's right in front of us, when it looks at us in the mirror, when it's in our own hearts. The media bolsters the human tendency to compare. Well, I, I'm clearly not that bad. I, I, I'm not Hitler. I would never plant a bomb. I would never hack someone to pieces with a machete. Therefore, I must be a good person. Modern psychology gives us excuses for our sin. Well, that's, that's just my personality. That's just who I am, or, or that's just the way that I was raised, or I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm, I'm the victim of my DNA. I can't help it, you see. I have a mental disability. The problem is not my heart. The problem is external to who I am. The problem lies out there. That I, it's what happened to me in the past. You see, I'm morally innocent. I'm the victim here. The culture of comfort License and personal autonomy that we live in creates confusion over what is good and what is evil. We've lost all concept of what this is. We, 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 we're lost. In, is this a right choice? Is this a wrong choice? Am I really in sin? Is it really that bad? Perhaps you've spoken to people on the issue of gay marriage, and they're like, well, I'm not gay, but who am I to say that that's wrong? We say, okay, okay, killing's wrong, but not always, right? Because convenience killing can work out pretty well. But even though killing is wrong, you know, my, what, what's wrong with my pride? What's wrong with my self-centered apathy towards other people? What, what, what about my idols? Those things don't really seem to, to factor in at all. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe you haven't planted a bomb. Maybe you haven't, but instead you've exploded at another person in anger. Maybe you haven't hacked someone up with a machete, but instead you use your words time and time again to pierce their hearts, stabbing them over and over and over again. And maybe you haven't stoically severed the spines of the defenseless, but you have killed them over and over and over again in your hearts with your hate and your indifference and your malice and your apathy. You see, the problem is not out there. That there are evil people in the world that do really, 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 really bad things. The problem is right here in this room. The problem looks at you in the mirror. 
It's in the heart of every single person. And if we truly want to understand why mankind is the way it is, if we truly want to understand why sin and evil and suffering exist in the world, you are going to have to look beyond your own self-centered, self-serving, subjective, opinionated finger-pointing and start seeing how God assesses each and every heart. If we want to understand the what and the why of evil, we have to look to the ultimate objective standard of what is good. If we want to understand the sin in our hearts, we have to look to the one who knows no sin, but the one who knows our hearts far better than we could ever. We have to look to God. We have to start there. How does God view Sin. How does God view me? And what can be done about it? Our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You can find it in the Bibles provided in the chairs on page 976. But our passage answers those questions. It tells us who we are in light of a holy, righteous, and just God. It tells us what we ourselves in our own power and ability can do about sin. And it tells us about the true reality and the depth of the human condition. You see, apart from Christ, all mankind was dead, enslaved, and condemned in sin. Apart from Christ, all mankind. Every person here, every person throughout the world, every person that ever existed was dead, enslaved, and condemned in sin. And so please read along with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is God's description of all mankind. This is the universal human condition. By nature and apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have three depictions of our nature in sin. And the first is that we were dead. We were dead. It's not too difficult to see this point in the passage, right? Right there in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Those who have sinned are dead in their sin. And since all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious and sinless standard, which is himself, all are deserving of death. The wages of our sin is death, a physical death and a spiritual death. That's what it means when it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The consequence of our sin is not simply that we will not live forever, that we will die a physical death, but that as a result of our sin, we have separated ourselves from the God who is the source of all true life, all eternal life, all life-giving life, all true and full life, everlasting life. We have cut ourselves off. We have separated ourselves from Him. We have rejected the one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who gives you the breath that you take right now. We have cut ourselves off from Him. We've separated ourselves out. Sin is forever alienation. It separates us from the very purpose of our being, the only person that can truly satisfy our souls. God is the only thing that can fill that void that you feel in your heart. You see, we were created to have fellowship with the one true and living God. We were created to know him. We were created to make him known. But we've all sinned. 
As we understand who God is, we know that God is holy, that, that he is set apart from sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. God is righteous. That means that he can take no part. He can have no, no relationship with, no place with wrongdoing. And God is perfect in his character. He is good, which means he cannot have fellowship with anything that is evil. Evil being the perversion, the twisting, the manipulation, the distortion of what is good. And because God is just, he cannot overlook sin and wrongdoing and evil. He is a perfect God. For him to just overlook that, he would cease to be God. He would cease to be perfect. He cannot do it. And so the result of our sin is eternal separation from God, both physically and spiritually. By our own nature and in our sin, we were dead. I hope that you can see that sin is no light thing. You know, we often treat sin as, as mistakes. You know, it's just a flaw, it's a foible, just kind of an error in character, you know, just a, a light thing. We treat sin as though it's arbitrary. We treat sin like breaking the speed limit, right? And we justify that because, you know, w- when we look at the speed limit, it's just some arbitrary standard that is imposed by equally sinful men who are stuffy government officials that really they only want to ruin our fun and make money for government and and really just keep us from making any decent time on any trip that we have to make, right? That's why the speed limit's there. So I'm just going to go ahead and break it. It doesn't really matter. It's arbitrary. Well, sin and trespass, it's not like that. See, sin, according to our children's catechism, sin is failing to do what God commands. Sin is breaking God's law. Trespass is going off course. It's going off of God's course. But here's the thing about God's law and God's course. They're based upon God himself. They're based upon his nature, his character, his purposes, his promises. And so to sin and to trespass is a big deal because it's a personal affront to God. It's a rejection of who he is. It is a personal affront. It is a, it's a rebellion. One author calls it cosmic treason. To commit sins and trespasses is to commit cosmic treason. The big issue here is not that we commit sins and trespasses, but that at our core we are sinners, that we are rebels, that we are God-haters, That we want to live our lives without the very creator, the very sustainer, and the very purpose of our lives, which is God himself. We want to live as if this is my world and I am God. Sin is a personal rejection of the God of the universe. It is an attempt, when we sin, to turn the very cosmos on its head. It is cosmic treason against the God who created and sustains all things. So the reason why we were dead is because we have rejected God. We've tried to go our own way. We've tried to do our own thing. We've tried to be our own boss. And our sin blinds us to the glory of God in Christ. Sin makes us deaf to the work of the Holy Spirit that is all around us. And so as a byproduct of that, we are as unresponsive to God's self-revelation, God making himself known as a corpse is to the sound of someone's voice. We cannot hear. We cannot see. We cannot respond because we were dead. As sinners, we have gladly and willfully chosen to live in the sphere of sin. We have all chosen death. Apart from Christ and by our own nature, we live and walk in death. Now when you hear the words dead and walk, what two illustrations always come to mind? Right? You think of a man on death row, right? Dead man walking, and you think of zombies, right? 
You guys know how much I love zombies. If you don't know me, that was sarcasm. I do not love zombies. Okay. Um, Now, does a man convicted of a crime and sentenced to execution have the ability to save himself? Can he free himself from his sentence, from his condemnation, from his impending death? No. Right? He can't. Now, does the zombie who in his living deadness have the ability to free himself from the single purpose of eating the only remaining living people and turning them into zombies too? No. Right? It doesn't. The living dead have no desire or ability to make themselves alive. They don't go around searching for a cure for their undeadness. They simply live in death. The man guilty and condemned to death has no ability in and of himself to save his own life from the just condemnation that he has received. He is a dead man walking. And in our sin and by our own very nature as fallen man, we were dead. Now that doesn't mean that you are by nature a condemned serial killer just as bad as you can possibly be or that you are as personally repugnant as a zombie. Right? Plenty of people who find themselves there, all people find themselves there, no matter how moral they are, no matter how popular they are, or no matter how personally pleasant they are. You can be all of those things and still be dead in your sin. But spiritually, you are cut off from life with God. Careless, cursed, and condemned. Every human being has justly been sentenced for their sin, completely blind and apathetic to its cure. That's what it means to be dead. You may be living, breathing, and making choices, but you are dead to true life. You have forfeited that life for your sin. So this passage stands in stark contrast to two main propositions in the world. The first proposition is that you are basically good, that the problem lies outside of you, out there, or it's biologically beyond your control. And the second proposition that the world throws at you is that if you just work hard or you have enough determination, you can do anything, including saving yourself. No, this passage tells us the complete opposite. You were dead. You were not basically good, but willfully and morally evil, committing trespasses and sins. And you are not able to will yourself to eternal life and reconciliation to God because you were dead. Dead by nature and dead in your sin. But not only does God reveal our human nature is dead in sin, but second, we see that we were enslaved. Let's pick back up there in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, tearing out the desires of the body and the mind. And so not only were we dead in our sin, but we were enslaved. We were enslaved to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh. And each of these served to shackle us to our condition of death. Each of them lead us further and further in the direction of death, away from the God who gives life. We, you see, we are by nature worshipers. We were created to worship, and we are, at every moment of time, always worshiping something. If you right now are hungry and thinking only of food, you are worshiping your stomach. Right? If you're right now just thinking about some relationship you have with some other person, you are worshiping that relationship. We're worshipers. We can't help but worship. It's why we were created. 
The problem is, instead of worshiping the God of life, we pursue loves that lead only to death. The world, the devil, and the passions of the flesh actually incite us to worshiping things that lead only to further separation from God, and by so doing, they enslave us. We are in bondage. The first chain that enslaves us is the world. That walking in our trespasses and sins, we follow the course and the ways of this world. And to follow the ways of the world is to submit to a whole social value system that is alien to God. It's separate from God. We do this all the time. Friends, we live in a culture that is materialistic where the goal is simply to acquire as much possession as possible, to find our satisfaction, to find our contentment in the things that we have. It's consuming. Our culture is hedonistic. The goal of life is to maximize pleasure in the here and now. It doesn't matter how slight the pleasure is. It doesn't matter how gross the pleasure is. What matters is that I get it and I get it now. It is about me and what I want. I am called, I am entitled to seeking my own pleasure in whatever I find fancy in. The world we live in is amoral. It rejects the notion of moral absolutes. How can you say that this is right or how can you say this is wrong? The world we live in is relativistic. It tries to deny and suppress the idea of absolute truth, that we can't really know anything. And if we can't really know anything, it's just a matter of subjective opinion and what you decide to be true and what you decide to be true and those things are competing, well, then we are not accountable to anything. The world we live in is secular, that it tries to set itself apart from God. And it does it by rejecting the God who made and sustains it. To follow the course of this world is to follow in a pattern of life which is alien to God. You know, one Christian author called the world the church of the dead. I think this is a very fitting illustration because we are always worshiping. You see, by nature, we're always worshiping, we're always loving, we're always pursuing, always seeking satisfaction for our souls in something. The world is the church in the dead in that it, of the dead in that it gathers those who are dead in their sin to get them to worship and serve that which will only lead to further death. The world has its own religious rituals. The world has its own traditions. The culture that you live in has its own liturgy. The world has its own pursuits, its own rules for living, and you are shunned if you go against that. The world has its own sermons. The world has its own songs of praise. Each and every day, you are called to worship by thousands upon thousands of images and voices that are trying to get you in whatever small way to worship that rather than your creator. The world beckons you to bow down and worship to any number of idols. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it is not the one true and living God. As long as it is not putting Christ first. Friends, you hear it in songs, you read it in ads, you watch it on screens, you hear it in the voices of the people sitting next to you every day. But underneath the myriad of enticing calls to worship are the chains of cultural bondage. As one pastor put it, the world's ideas about relationships, children, beauty, Business, sex, etc. are all corrupt and leading to death. And we took it on board. We took on board the practices of the world with no suspicion, no resistance, no reflection, no thought of the fact that the end of the world's ways is death. We skipped merrily to the deepest parts of hell. Prince, how are you following the course of this world? How are you 
taking on the culture without any real thought of how it stands in relation to God and life with Him? How are you just embracing it, just taking it in because it's available or because it's entertaining without giving a thought to how it stands in opposition to God? Friends, the way of life is counter to the way of the world. The God of freedom is opposite the world that brings only bondage. But not only did we follow the course of the world, but verse 2 says that we also followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit that is work now in the, at work in the sons of disobedience, this is not some impersonal force, this ethereal evil. Okay, We don't live in some or we don't want to believe in some dualistic, ethereal attitude of evil that plagues those who have not been enlightened. We see that this, is, this evil is personal. This spirit is personal because it's also called the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the power of the air. This is a personal spirit. He's speaking of the devil. He's speaking of Satan. And when we hear the devil or Satan, we typically go one of two routes, one or two polar opposites, right? Either we're too smart or too scientific for the notion of the devil, right? That that's just some archaic, primitive explanation to explain what is unexplainable. There are no, no angels or demons or spirits in the world. Or we go to the opposite extreme where... The devil is treated as the embodiment of all evil and the source of every bad thing that happens in the world. Right? I stole a cookie. It was the devil. Transmission went out of my car. It was the devil. I had a bad hair day. It was the devil. And neither of those is true. First of all, we, we have to be clear. God tells us in his word that there is an unseen spiritual realm in which angels and demons reside. They are at work, either to serve the purposes of God or to stand wholly opposed against them. Paul often speaks of the reality of these spiritual powers at work. We're going to see this often in Ephesians. We've already seen it in, in Ephesians chapter 1 when he tells us that there is a measure in which they have rule and authority and power and dominion. In chapter 3, we will read that the church, that is those who obey Christ, will reveal the wisdom of God to these spiritual powers. In chapter 4, we are called to give no opportunity to the devil. And in chapter 6, we are to put on the armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here in Ephesians alone, Scripture is clear that there is, are evil spiritual beings who live and stand against God's purposes for his people. And their ruler, Satan, is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's at work in the sons of disobedience? Well, it doesn't mean necessarily that they are under his possession. Okay? Nor does it mean that any time we sin, it's because the devil made me do it. Now, my, my two oldest boys, Layden and Gabe, you know, when they were about five years old, they kind of entered this phase in which the devil was the culprit behind everything that happened right? They disobeyed against mom. It was, the devil made him do it, you know? And so Gabe would kind of go into this, this very dramatic diatribe about how he would, next time he would talk to Satan, Satan, no! You know, he's just like, he would just get all animated about it. It was really cute. It was really witty. It was really funny. It was completely not true. And we had to talk to him about that over and over again. You know, Satan might have powerful influence in the lives of, of unbelievers, but notice but Paul doesn't call them sons of possession. He doesn't call them sons of the devil. He calls them what? Sons of disobedience. So where does the liability fall? It falls on them. They're morally responsible. They have disobeyed. 
Satan is the father of lies. He deceives. He manipulates. He tries to twist things around so that we would follow after the course of the world, so we would gratify our flesh. But in the end, we are acting out of our own volition. We are doing what we want to do. We are sons of disobedience. And no matter how powerful he might be at work in and through and around those who are sons of disobedience, we can be absolutely sure of this, that they are held responsible. You know, Satan hates joy. Satan hates true pleasure. And so he works to twist and to distort and to mar and to ruin the good blessings that we have received from God. And so if the world is the church of the dead, then Satan is the pastor. He's the preacher. He's the worship leader. And just to make sure that we understand that by nature we are not simply innocent puppets who are under the mastery of the world and the devil, Paul says in verse 3 that we all once lived among these sons of disobedience in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're doing it. The world and the devil only serve to fuel the fire of our true nemesis, which is our own sinful flesh. The ultimate captor, the fundamental actor that enslaves us in death is our own sinful nature. And when Paul says flesh, he's not talking about the living fabric that covers your bones. What he's talking about is your fallen, self-centered nature. He is speaking of your sinful heart. Your true enemy is not outside of you. It is within. It is in your hearts. At its core, living, the, the flesh is living for self. It is seeking yourself first. It is loving yourself, serving yourself, sacrificing any and all things for yourself. Your biggest problem is, and the reason why you are dead in your sins is not out there. It's not external to you. It's not situations. It's not circumstances. It's not that you've been abused in the past, as horrible as that is. It doesn't matter what it is. The problem with you is you. Sin is not something outside you. It is within James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says the reason why each person is tempted is when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It says later in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it says, question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The reason why you were a son or daughter of disobedience is because you lived in the passions of your flesh, that you carried out the desires of of your body and your mind. You sought your own way. You tried to make yourself first. And this is not just like some part of you. It is all of you. You carried out the desires of your body and your mind, your whole self. Okay, so the problem is not that you have certain physical desires, like a desire for sex or food or drink, that the problem is bigger than that. It includes the desires of the mind, that you used your thought life, your intelligence, your fallen reasoning skills to put yourself first in pride and in anger, in hatred, in apathy, and in ambition. You harbored sinful thoughts and attitudes. You acted out of your senses and impulses rather than putting Christ first and others before yourself. 
You know, just because you think a certain way, just because you feel a certain way, or just because you seem to habitually act on impulse in a certain way, does not mean that that's okay. It is not neutral because it's rooted in the disposition of your heart. And your heart is never neutral. You are either worshiping and obeying God, or you are worshiping and serving objects of your passions and desires. Living in the passions, in your passions, and carrying out the desires of your sinful heart will never satisfy. Friends, it is like a cancer, always consuming, never finding enough. The appetite of our self-centered, self-serving desires is insatiable, always feeding, but never, ever satisfied. Ed Welch once said that if we could see ourselves in a mirror for who we really were apart from Christ, we would look like a raging fire or a greedy leech. We're like drug addicts always living out of this unquenchable desire of I want, I need, I crave just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just one more fix, one more time, and that will be enough, but always going further and further and further in. Living out of that desire for just a little bit more will always lead to lonely, bitter, agonizing enslavement. Have you ever seen someone who is addicted to drugs? It's horrible. It's enslaving. But here's the thing. Living out of the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, it will never bring you the joy and the freedom and the satisfaction that you are looking for. It will never do it. So what is it that you desire? What are you passionate about? If it is anything less than Christ being first in your life, you have to understand that it comes with chains. No matter how good it is, it comes with chains. It will enslave you. So apart from Christ, we were dead in our sin. We were enslaved by the world, the devil, and our flesh. And the third description of our universal human condition outside of Christ is that we were condemned. The second half of verse 3 states that the consequence of our human condition is this, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When he says children of wrath here, he's not talking about angry kids. He says you are children who are subject to God's wrath. All mankind, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their place in history, their geography, or their religious heritage, all mankind at one point in their lives was condemned under the wrath of God. They were all children of wrath. They were all sons of disobedience. And this is the opposite of those who by God's grace have been adopted and have been chosen and brought into God's family as sons and daughters for obedience to Christ. You see, there are two types of people in Ephesians 1 and 2. There are children of wrath and there are children of God who have been adopted out of that wrath. There are sons and daughters of disobedience. And there are those whom God has chosen to live holy and blameless before him in obedience to Christ. Two types of people. You are either one or the other. There is no neutral position. There is no faithful man on the island. No one can be saved while still living in their sin. Everyone, at one point in their lives, actually lived as children of wrath 
until God in His mercy saved some and made them His beloved children. Those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, those who are enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh are children of God's wrath. God will justly punish every sin against Himself in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His goodness and justice and love. He will eternally condemn all of those who have sinned against Him. Those whom He has spared are those whom have been redeemed by Christ's own blood. Their condemnation fell upon him. He is the only hope. Now I wonder how this sits with you, knowing that apart from Christ, all are children of God's wrath. Every single person. It ought to show us how great our sin is against God. Far from being flaws or missteps, the root of our sin is abject rebellion against the perfect and holy God. And because He is God, He must punish sin according to His absolute and just standard, which is Himself. When He sets His wrath upon sinners, you have to understand that this is not like human wrath. It's not like God had a bad day, that he was angry. He's not ill-tempered. God does not fly off the handle. He doesn't do things out of spite or malice or revenge. He's not subject to mood or sinful emotion. God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. God's wrath is completely consistent with his own perfect character. But not only were we all condemned as children of wrath, but we were condemned by nature. Our every proclivity from birth is to sin against God. Now again, that doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be, but what we are at our core are people who want to disregard the God who made us, the God who we were created for and live for ourselves. Our every proclivity from childhood is to that end, from very early on. And Will sins against us frequently, and he knows it, and it's cute, and it's horrible. Romans 5, 12 through 21 speaks of our inherited guilt and corruption that we have received from our father, Adam. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skipping down to verse 18, it says, therefore, as one trespass, that is Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that is Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, in Adam, we were born in a state of sin and misery. We were born, we inherited a sinful nature, and as soon as we were capable, we acted out of that inherited guilt and corruption by willfully, longingly, and gladly sinning against God. All mankind is condemned by nature in Adam. And so this is the universal human condition apart from Christ. This is who every single person in this room at one point was or currently is. Our depravity is pervasive. It affects every aspect of our lives, leaving us in a total inability to save ourselves. And this is not simply the opinion of stuffy theologians. This is the condition that God, the righteous judge, says that all mankind was in. This is God's word to us. To understand that, we have to embrace that. Our state before God is not determined by how we naively compare ourselves with the evil that is out in the world. But instead, as John Calvin says, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself 
with God's majesty. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. The knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, it leads us by the hand to find him. Friends, do you not see your true state apart from Christ before God? Do you not see who you truly were? If we fail to see that, if we make light of it, if we fail to see the gravity of and recognize the true condition of our nature, we will naively put our faith in superficial remedies like our own choice, like saying some sinner's prayer, or putting our faith in faith. Well, I made a self-made profession when I was six years old. We'll think that the true cure to our state is not Christ, but simply to think better thoughts about ourselves, or to boost our self-esteem, or try to find better strategies to manage dysfunctional behaviors. We'll never reach the end of ourselves. And if we never reach the end of ourselves, we'll never find Christ there. We'll constantly see the problem as being outside of ourselves and we'll never truly aspire to worship God who by His grace alone saves us from our desperate and condemnable state. It is only in comparison to the perfection of God that we see ourselves for who we truly are, far more wretched and far more sinful than we could have dare possibly imagined. And so if you happen to be here today and you've not truly placed your faith in Christ, and just know that when I'm saying that, I'm saying that to maybe some of you who have been a part of the church for a long time and you maybe have prayed a prayer or received baptism or participated in in some religious activity for quite some time. This could be you. If you fail to see who you truly are, that you know, if you truly fail to, to place your trust in Christ, this is who you are, that you are dead, that you are enslaved, that you are condemned. This text is describing all people who live without faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is your condition. Praise God that it doesn't have to be. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He lived a perfect life, a life that you and I can never live, a life of perfect sinlessness. And he gave up that life by dying on a cross to take God's wrath for sin upon himself. He rose again three days later to show us that you do not have to remain in death, that you do not have to remain enslaved to your sin, that you do not have to remain condemned, that there is life, that there is freedom, that there is grace. If you would turn away from your selfish pursuit of sin and put Christ first in your life, following after him, To my Christian brothers and sisters, the amazing hope that comes in understanding the depth and depravity of who we were apart from Jesus Christ is simply that. This is who we were. It is past tense. It is not who we are. Who we were. By the grace of God in Christ that no longer describes us. That is no longer who we are. How could that not then lead us to worship? How could that not lead us to aspire to Him? To seek Him? To put Him first? To find our soul's delight in Him? And why then? 
if this is who we were, would we ever desire to return to that former manner of life? Following the course of this world, the devil, and living in the passions and desires of our flesh. Why? Why would we want to? See the result. See the tragedy of it all, that it leads only to ruin and misery. Find displeasure in the former manner of life in light of the majesty of God. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be imitators of our gracious Heavenly Father as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Apart from Him, you were dead. You were enslaved. You were condemned. But now, live in the light of Freedom and grace. Let's pray together. Father God, I I pray that our eyes would be open to our desperate, sinful state. I pray that our eyes would be open to who we are in comparison, not to the evils of this world, but in comparison to you. I pray that we would see who we truly were, that we were dead, that we were enslaved by so many things, that we were condemned by you, that we find ourselves in the same place as all mankind, completely dead and undeserving of your grace and mercy. I pray for those who are in this room, who haven't truly placed their faith and hope in Christ, that this text would awaken them, that it would enliven them, that their eyes would be open to their real sinful state and their desperate need for salvation in Christ. I pray that they would see you for who you truly are as holy and righteous and good and just and loving, who offers the hope of eternal reconciliation, eternal life with you, the, the purpose for which we were created, our soul's very satisfaction. For those of us who are yours, who are your children, oh God, I pray that it would lead us to unceasing worship. It would lead us to aspire towards you. That we would see sin for what it is and and be repulsed by it. That we would hate it. That we would not desire to run to it, but would run to Christ. God, we thank you that in Christ this is no longer who we are, but who we were. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.